You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, you would please make your way to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 16 and 17 today. If you don't have a Bible, there's one uh, somewhere underneath one of the chairs around you. And if you're using one of those, you can turn to page 967. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Let's read this together and see what the Lord might have for us this morning. God's Word says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Lord, as we look at this powerful text, Lord, a powerful section of your scripture that you have used over the years and over the centuries to do remarkable things for your kingdom, radical and amazing things. God, it's my prayer that you would speak to us in the same ways you spoke to those who saw this afresh and turned the world upside down. God, I'm asking now as I have the task of communicating, I hope, what the message of this verse has for us, that you would fill me with your spirit. And God, that you would open ears, that you would prepare hearts, and God, that we would be moved by the power of your gospel in these scriptures, or that we would be forever changed. And maybe, Lord, maybe we too would take part in turning this community upside down and see it redeemed by the power of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, imagine for a minute if I were to... to to take this slide off the screen and instead put up the news, the world news or the news of our nation or the local news even or even the, the community news of your HOA, okay, if you have that. If we were to put the news up and we were to ask the question, what is the greatest problem in the world right now, what would we see? And I know some of you would say, well, the first problem is the news. The news is the problem. <laughs> Fair enough. I hear you, but let's get to the root of that. Why is the news the problem? Or what is this great and tremendous problem? What is the greatest problem? And I'm going to propose also that if we were to do this, the root problem that we would see in the world is the same greatest root problem that we see in the church today. It's really not any different. And... For many of us, it could be the greatest problem we are experiencing in our own lives and in our own Christian journey. So what's the problem I'm talking about? And I've heard people shout out the big Sunday school answer, and yes, uh, that's true. But the problem I'm talking about is that we are, the world, our community, and even us, we are ashamed of the gospel. Before Martin Luther was the champion of the Protestant Reformation, the famous guy who nailed the 95 Theses to the door at the Wittenberg Castle. Before he was that guy, he was a simple monk. He had entered a monastery to try to make peace with God. And in that monastery, he was uh, just separated, removed from the evils of the world. He was in a safe haven, a bubble. And while he was there, you know what he did with his time? He sang hymns 
all day. He meditated on scripture. He, he thought about what God would have for him. He studied. He served his fellow monks, his brothers there. And it says in, in his own writing and the writings of others that he confessed his sin in the confessional for hours and hours every single day. How he could rack up that much sin in this monastery, I don't know. But he did. <laughs> And he confessed and he confessed because he was in agony and he was finding no relief and no, uh, no reprieve from just this overwhelming burden of his sin. He knew he was a condemned man and he couldn't shake it. He couldn't get it off. He just could not get away from that idea. And no amount of labor and no amount of toil, no amount of spiritual discipline, Bible study, confession, prayer, singing hymns would give him any relief. He couldn't find it. He could not find it. You see, he was ashamed of the gospel. He incidentally, once Luther learned from this very scripture why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, God used the gospel in Luther's life to radically change him and to embolden him. And then as he could preach the gospel... It radically changed the world around him. And God used the gospel preached through Martin Luther to turn the world upside down. And in all of that, Luther was a new man. He was free. The bondage of what he was wrestling with was no longer on his back. The chains were broken. It is my aim today that, that we might see here today in this room what Luther saw. It's my hope that we might understand what moved and motivated Paul to make such a claim. And then I've been praying that we won't be ashamed of the gospel either. And maybe, maybe by the power of what's in God's word here, God might use the gospel in our lives to be preached out into the community and turn the world upside down. But it's got to start with us understanding Paul's claim. What's Paul's claim? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And so to get to the, the heart of this, here's what I want to do. I want to look at the terms he's using. There's some theologically rich words in these two verses, and we need to understand them rightly. And then when we have the definitions in hand and we've got a good idea how he's using those words, I want us to walk through his claim. And then finally, I hope that we might see what could be possible if we, like the Apostle Paul and like Luther, were to live our lives unashamed of the gospel, truly. That's my goal. So let's start with the key words, okay? So I have six key words here in these verses. And by the way, if you just want to leave your Bible open to this, we're not going anywhere else. We are going to camp out in two verses this morning. But we need to understand these words that are contained here. The key words that I want to look at are ashamed, Gospel, power, salvation, righteous, and faith. And I'll read them again because this sermon, this particular Sunday, this is the note taker's dream. I mean, I've just set this up just for you. <laughs> Ashamed, gospel, power, salvation, righteous, and faith. Now, let's read so we can see how they're being used here. We'll talk about them in more detail, where they're being used, and kind of what the context is. Let's just read the two verses again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation. 
And everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, don't get wound up about that. It's just saying everyone. And historically, it came to the Jews and then it went to the Greeks. For in the righteousness of God, it is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. All right, the six words. Let's start with the first, ashamed. Now, I'm using a lexicon, a lexical definition, which looks at the Greek word behind this ashamed. And what this does is it shows us what that Greek word meant at the time it was used. The one I'm using, for any of you super Greek nerds, is called BDAG. Uh, It's really, really a very robust and helpful lexicon. Here's what we find from where we get the word ashamed. It says, to experience a painful feeling or a sense of loss of status because of some particular event or activity, or I would even add person. Okay, uh, to experience a painful feeling or a sense of loss of status. Like I would say think in our context in the English, think kind of embarrassed. Okay, because often we think of ashamed in the sense of like something we did. And then we're ashamed of what we did and the mistakes we made and we feel this sort of weird burden. But that's not what this word is. That's not the same sense of this ashamed word. Uh, This is more like parent career day in elementary school. I don't even know if they still do this, but all the parents come and imagine for a minute you're a third grader and you're, you know, sitting there and all the parents are lined up and all the other kids' parents are highly educated at the best schools in the world. Some of them are famous sitting there, and everybody's clamoring to, to meet these famous, highly educated, highly paid professionals, top of their career. That's every kid's parents, but your parent is a blue-collar, humble servant in an entry-level, minimum-wage job. Okay, not that that's bad, but you know you know what that third grader might be feeling. We understand that, right? That's what this word is. That kind of ashamed. It's not the same. There's something there. Okay, the next word. And we're going to come back to all these words, but the next word we need to understand is gospel. Okay, gospel is God's good news to humans. Okay, this is specifically relating to the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Okay, this is the revelation of Jesus given to us from God that if believed and trusted, it claims to give reconciliation between sinners and God, thus resulting in right standing before God, it results in a new spiritual birth, and it results in eternal life. That's the gospel. And Romans chapter 1 through 11 is a very detailed presentation of this gospel that Paul is introducing here. He goes into tremendous detail, and we're going to go through it in this series. And then chapters 12 through 16 is sort of the outworking or the practical demonstration of what happens because of the gospel in the life of a believer. It's the, it's the laboratory of the, the gospel lecture in the first 11 chapters. Or just think of it like this. The gospel is the redemptive history combined together with the redemptive promises of God. Okay, that's the gospel that Paul is referring to. Next, this word power, power. The lexicon says potential for functioning in some way. 
power, might, strength, force. Or this one's probably the most helpful here, capability. Okay, the word is dunamis. Dunamis. This word is where we get the word dynamite in English. Now, don't, please don't think that what's being said here is that there's some explosive thing that does great destruction, and it must be that the gospel destroys worldviews and blows stuff up. It's not that. That's not how the word is being used here. The word is being used here as capacity to do something significant. Dunamis, capacity to have some significant power. I remember as a kid getting to drive my parents' muscle cars. My mom had one, and my stepmom had one, a Firebird and a Mustang, 1960s vintage, if you're interested. And uh, I remember when you're at like a stoplight, and you're a teenager, let's put these two together, (laughs) that sort of purring rumble, and you know there's something under the hood, a dunamis, a power that when you hit the gas, the car and the torque is just going to cause the car to kind of turn and you're going to be buried in your seat and there is power. But when you're at the light, that dunamis is capacity. It's power, right? But it's not necessarily being exercised all the time. Does that mean the power is not there? No, of course not. It's completely there. That's how this word power, this dunamis is. Okay, the next one. This is real simple. This is salvation. And the lexicon tells us that this means salvation. <laughs> or saved or rescued. Okay, pretty simple there. The word is soteria, and we get our study of salvation word, soteriology. Ology means the study of, soteria means salvation, the study of salvation. Uh, salvation here. But this word has a particular nuance in that, in the way it's been used in other places and the way maybe Paul is using it here, is it's really clear or implied in the word that if there's not an act of salvation, not something changing, then the existing negative state remains. So this word has the ability to change a negative state, and and praise the Lord, it's salvation. Our fifth word, righteous, righteous, and this means being in accordance with high standards of rectitude, upright, just, fair, or right. And right, this should be really simple, right is in the English word, like it's cooked right into the word, right, correct, good. Now we have in this verse, it's, you see it in verse 17, we have the righteousness of God, And that's being used as a descriptor to say this is something God has and something God is. And then we also have the word that means the righteous. And in this case, it's referring to people who are saved, who are redeemed, who are justified, who can stand before God and say they're not condemned, but instead they are saved. This is referring to a category of people, the righteous, the saved. This is what Martin Luther desperately wanted. He wanted to understand how to go from being condemned, the sinner, to being among those who are righteous. How do I join that group? And he was working 
through all the religious stuff of his day. He was doing all the work. He was doing all the stuff. All that stuff that probably the rest of the monks thought, man, that guy is serious about this. It wasn't doing anything for him. He just wasn't doing it. And then he writes in his own studies, he read Romans 16, 1, 16 through 17. And he studied it and he found out that this is the secret sauce of Christianity. It changed everything for him. It liberated him from his religious bondage and it completely changed his life. Now, there are a lot of people, maybe some in here, that are just like Martin Luther before he was saved, right? Very religious, doing all the stuff, avoid the bad stuff, do the good stuff and make sure you do it in the right way. Be the good, choose the right, do just a little more. Just keep chugging along, just keep after it. Some, it's going to unlock the key and something's going to happen. Just keep going. You're almost there. Just working at it and going, just a little more. If you've been in that boat or if you are in that boat, what's the question you ask? Well, how much more? When do I get there? Please, how much more? And what's the answer when you're stuck in that kind of religion? Just a little more. Just a little more. Those are the exhausting chains of religion and religious practice. They don't make anyone righteous before God because they are not the gospel, and therefore they contain no saving dunamis power. They don't have a capacity to do anything except burn you out. Our last word here is faith. Faith. The state of believing, and this part's really important, on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted. It's trust, it's confidence, it's faith, but it's the state of believing based on the reliability of the one or what you are trusting. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Okay, so this kind of faith is not blind. It's not simply just you want it to be true and, and therefore it must be. This is a state of believing based on the reliability or the trustworthiness of the one in whom you believe. This is based on your experience with this person or this experience. Or it's based on the testimony of others with this person or experience. It's really not about you and how much faith you can have. It's about the reliability of the one whom you're placing your faith. This is why when we read Hebrews 11 that tells us what faith is, the entire rest of the chapter is a story about all these people who had an encounter with God and God kept his promises. So the whole chapter, hundreds of people to go, wow, based on that testimony, we can still have faith in this Jesus. Imagine <laughs> that you get up here, and uh, you head out to lunch, and you start having a real pain in your side. Of course, first you think it's food poisoning, then you think it's gas, but nope, this is beyond both of those. You're having an appendicitis, and it's not good, and it's to the point where it's about to burst, okay? And if it bursts, it's going to spill harmful bacteria all through your guts, and this could be absolutely lethal to you. It could be fatal. It could end your life. So, you, of course, you go to the doctor. And by the grace of God, the doctor that you go to right here in our valley happens to be the leading expert on the appendix. 
and she has performed thousands and thousands of procedures to remove a damaged and inflamed appendix. And in fact, of all the thousand procedures she has ever performed, she's never had one go bad. She's never had one complication. She's never had one problem. She was trained at the greatest schools. She's flown all over the world to talk about how to remove people's appendix. Appendices? Appendix? This is her job. You could not have possibly walked into a better place to have this procedure with the best odds and the best chances of you being okay. So, it is not just because you want to have faith in her. It's that based on her training and based on her track record, you have faith that she's going to be able to do what she claims she can do. And in fact, based on that, you tell others, man, I have the best. She's never had a problem. You have faith in her, don't you? In this doctor who can bring you relief based on your problem. You're hoping on her claim and her promise that she can help you. And your hope is solidified by her track record and her testimony that has been made from... Maybe, maybe you call others and find out and they go, oh, yeah, she's great. That's what your faith is based on. That's the faith we're talking about here. It's not empty. It's not blind. It's based on this kind of evidence and experience with the one in whom you place your faith in. Now, that's our six words. Okay, that's the theologically robust words that Paul has strung together to make his claim. So with all that in hand, with that as our definition now of each of these, let's see if we can understand his claim. We're going to go back through it again. Okay, sure, it won't take, but just look at your Bible. Let's, you know what's in these words now. Ready? For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now let's break the claim down a little bit. First of all, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because, or maybe your translation says for, right? it, meaning the gospel. He's not ashamed of this gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. He saves by no other way. It is the power. It is the dunamis that does the saving work. And because Paul says he's not ashamed, it seems that there is a real possibility that he could be ashamed. It wouldn't be impossible. It wouldn't be any stretch of the imagination, would it? I think we understand that possibility, don't we? We could be ashamed. What does that look like? Well, it looks like not wanting our co-workers to know that we're a Christian. We can relate to Peter when he denies Christ. Or, I don't know that guy. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not with him. He's not my boy. I'm no thank you. You get around the joking and the, the water cooler chat. Like, yeah, just, yeah, weirdos. Those. We don't want our coworkers or our neighbors to know that we are a Christian. Or it might be, could be that we are embarrassed because the Bible speaks against popular behaviors and lifestyles in the world. And we don't want to be seen maybe as the one who believes the Bible is right and and we're, we're kind of embarrassed about this because maybe some of our friends are engaging in many of these things. And it could be, you know, you're probably thinking of something, and it might not even be just that. It might just be, hey, let's 
cheat in our taxes, or let's do this thing or that thing. Oh, it's cool. No worries about it. But you know the Bible says something different, or it might be something more drastic than that. And we're embarrassed because we know we want to believe the Bible is true, but we're embarrassed when we come around our friends. Or maybe it's because we want to dabble in those lifestyles as well. Another way that we could be ashamed of the gospel is not trusting the appearance of weakness that God almost always works in. You ever thought about that? When you look at the gospel, when you look at the stories, when you look at what God does, it is absurd how often God uses weakness. He uses a little runny guy. He uses the most unlikely super old person to have a baby. He uses the weirdest situations where there's no resources. Or how about this? Our Savior, the hero of the story, was killed on a shameful criminal's cross. Think about that. It would be easy to be embarrassed by the weakness, right? And that happens to us even today. Here's some examples. You're in a corporate solution. They have corporate answers. You know God does things a little bit differently, maybe functioning differently with this person or that person. Doesn't line up with what maybe, you know, the best practices in the business world look like, and then you're kind of embarrassed. You're not sure you want to go there, so you go to the business practices or the various traditions or the various psychology or the various theories or even the various religious practices that are different than what the Bible says. And we want to give it more weight and more credibility than we want to give the Bible. It happens even in this church. The temptations are high. The best strategy to share the gospel and grow is this best practice that this church discovered last week. You should do it. Man, it'll just it'll change everything in your church. And what you're doing is saying, no, the, the plan that God gave us isn't better if I say that's going to be better. We're tempted with this all the time, are we not? Or you go, man, I, I wish my church looked that amazing. I wish our app was cooler than all the coolest apps in the world. I wish our building was the most beautiful building in all the city. I wish everything was looked like this because we're so embarrassed by the weakness that God uses to change the world. And we're ashamed of his gospel because we're embarrassed by weakness. The last one, which I don't think any of us in here have really had to face, and, and I hope we never do, but it is a reality. It was a reality for Paul, and it's a reality for many around the world today, and that is the very real possibility of imprisonment, beatings, your family being harmed, or even death, because you simply say, I am a Christian. That would be a serious case of a painful feeling or fear of a loss of status or a loss of life. I pray none of us have to face that, but I wonder how we would do if we did. How easy would it be to be ashamed of the gospel in those circumstances? It's also worth noting here that Paul says, I'm not ashamed, rather than using a word that's the opposite of ashamed. What he's doing is he's, he's using the negation of a negative word. And by doing that, then, and it still works in our day today. It's making it more emphatic. It's more serious. The most serious way he could share this is say, I'm not this negative thing. I'm not ashamed. He's making it very, very emphatic. And it is the motivator of his life and everything we heard before and everything we will hear moving forward. I'm not ashamed. 
Because the gospel saves. What do we need saved from? What do we need saved from? What, what is the salvation? Why is it necessary? We need saved from God's righteous wrath because in his perfect justice, we're all guilty. And here's a little homework for you. Terrible Mother's Day homework, but really good for your soul. Uh, take a look at the verdict later at lunch. It's Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. That is God's verdict of his righteous justice. And guess what? We're all guilty. We've all been sentenced, and the sentence is a death sentence. We need saved, not just from that death sentence, but from our very soul that leads us to that death sentence. We need saved from the sin that brings about death. And not only do we need saved in a one-time act, we need sustained in that salvation forever. And that's what this is getting at. That's what he's getting at. That's what the gospel does. Imagine that you are in a pit, huge sides, and you claw up the sides and dirt just falls down on you and there's no getting out of the pit. That's bad enough. Now imagine the pit is completely full of poisonous, deadly snakes. And if you're not afraid of poisonous, deadly snakes, imagine they all have lasers that shoot out of their eyes. You are in a bad way. And there is no hope for you. And you scream to your friends, they can't hear you. You don't have your phone, or if you do, the battery's dead. You have no hope in the pit. This salvation, produced by the power, the dunamis of the gospel, is that Jesus reaches in and he pulls you out of the pit. And we all go, yeah, I understand the gospel in that way. But do you really understand the magnitude of being sustained in the gospel? Because here's what happens. He pulls you out and he goes, oh, blind child, I'm going to open your eyes. I'm going to give you the ability to see the path for you to walk on and see the pits. And I'm going to tell you where they all are. I'm going to mark them for you. And I'm going to tell you where to walk so that you don't fall in another pit again. However, (laughs) you're going to fall in one. So when you do, instead of panicking, instead of clawing at the sides and kicking away at the snakes, just cry my name and I'm right there and I'll pull you out again. And I will do it again and again and again and again and again. There is no end to how many times I will pull you out of the pit. It would be easier for you if you didn't fall in the first place. But if you do, Jesus is there. That's the saving and sustaining power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is not ashamed of. Now, this is where this gets real tricky for me, and I've been working my head around this one, praying about it, and by the grace of God, God showed me a way to understand this that I hope will be helpful for you. How is it, I mean really, how is it that the gospel is the power of salvation? In the illustration I just gave you, doesn't it seem like Jesus is the power of salvation? He's the one pulling me out. He's the one saving me. Why is the gospel said to be where the dunamis is contained? Where the power is? Why? How does that even work? It's just a, it's a, it's an account of an event, right? Let me tell you this. It's not. It is not that knowledge is power. It's not that the more I know the better off I'm going to be. Because when you say that, you're saying the one who has more information and more learning has a better opportunity to encounter the gospel than one that doesn't. And that is not true. The Bible does not ever say that is the case. No. The 
power of the gospel is contained in something that is entirely different. And let me state before I unpack this a little more, the gospel, whether you like it or not, is said to be God's means, his method, his tools to save and sustain you. Nothing outside of this. Not a special conference where you learn a bunch of secrets or you do this thing or that. The gospel is his means by saving and sustaining you. It's something that raises dead bones when preached and when heard. And it gives life and birth the gospel. This very thing that we can read, study, preach, proclaim, live. The gospel has the ability to change your status from eternally condemned to eternally justified before God. How? How does that work? A preacher that I like listening to was actually a famous doctor before he became a preacher. He even treated the Queen of England. And then he became a preacher. He gave all that up, all that prestige to preach the gospel because he realized in all of his care and all of his effort in helping people, they always left his care still empty without the thing they needed the most. And so he gave it all up to preach the gospel. And he shared this illustration. Same question. How is this powerful? Here's what he said. He said, this gospel that we have is like a prescription, like a medical doctor's prescription, little pad book. I don't even think they use a book anymore. They use an app or something. Right now, here's what happens. You have a tremendous ailment or some problem of some kind that is grieving you enough to go to the doctor to say, I need help. Please give me, give me the solution to this. And he writes you a prescription. And in that moment, you go, oh, praise the Lord, I have hope. I can take this and I can get the medication I need. I can get the help I need. I can get this referral to that person or this person or that person. You didn't get the actual thing, but you got the hope and the tool that takes you there. That is how this gospel offers you power. That is how that works. This prescription gives you what you need. I want to just look at one more thing. It says the righteous will live by faith. Before that, he says faith is from faith to faith. It's a progressive, growing thing. The more you know him, the more you walk with him, the more you trust him, the more he's growing you and you trust him more and more. But then he says this, the righteous, the saved, will live by faith. It means that we are sustained by this. This faith, not the works. We are living out our everyday life by this, not by religious behavior, not by works. And this is what Martin Luther read and went, wait just a minute. Not only am I saved from death to life, I'm living it out. And every single day I'm sustained to go in the faith that Jesus will fulfill the promises he gave us. Every single step, every single day. The people who are rejecting Jesus are saying they're ashamed of the gospel. They'd rather have something other than the gospel. They would rather have something works their own ways. They're ashamed of what is here. And they reject Jesus because of it, which is dangerous ground. Luke 9, 26 records that Jesus said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words 
The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and that of the Father and the holy angels. But as Christians, saved by the grace of God, we must not be ashamed of the gospel. We cannot be ashamed of the gospel. As easy as it is, how do we know if we're ashamed by the gospel? How do we know? You don't want people to know you're a Christian. You don't want to trust the instruction of the Bible because it's more popular to do something else. You put an effort to do more religious work above the gospel rather than crying out to Christ. You think you can do it yourself. So I want to encourage you to examine yourself. Ask yourself, are you ashamed of this saving, powerful gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you ashamed? Because what does it look like when we're not ashamed? Romans 1.14, Paul says he's, he's obligated to proclaim this gospel. I think when we're not ashamed, we want to tell others. Man, I got a prescription in my pocket for that, that situation. You got that situation? I had that situation. Here's the prescription. We want to tell others. Man, you should go talk to your doctor and get a prescription for that. It'll fix you right up. Paul also said yes to going on mission work and being involved in church planning. And maybe when you're not ashamed of the gospel, you say yes and we lay hands on you, and we send you to another country, or we send you to another state, or we send you to help a church plant, and you were about the work of the gospel. For Luther, he became entirely committed to teaching the Bible and living the Bible regardless of the consequences. Maybe that's you. Maybe God is calling you to teach the Bible. Maybe you're going to be a 21st century Martin Luther. When we are not ashamed of the gospel, we stop trying to run with the popular crowd at school or fit in with the popular group, because often to do that means we're at odds with God's word. Instead, we say, no, I'm with God, and I would be ashamed to hang with that group. No, I'm over here. When we are not ashamed of the gospel, we stop doing all the empty religious stuff that does not produce what you're looking for. It does not appease God. If you're in the pit, and the snakes are biting at your ankles. Simply cry out to Jesus. Say, I'm not ashamed. And a man who died on a criminal's cross, a God who emptied himself to enter humanity, will pull me out again over and over and over. And when we're not ashamed of the gospel, we train our kids up to walk and follow this same God who they shouldn't be ashamed of either. We get that the world's different. We get the stuff around them is difficult, but we're not ashamed. And we say, you know what? This is the best way for you to go. What changes in your life if you're not ashamed of the gospel? I mean, really. What changes if you're no longer ashamed of this amazing, powerful, dunamis, good news that saves? I really hope that Paul's claim can be your claim. I hope you can say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And if it hasn't been true in for you in the past. If, if today you're going, man, maybe I have been. That's okay. Cry out to Jesus. He'll pull you back up, put you on the path, send you on your way once more. Walk alongside you. You do not have to be ashamed of the gospel. And so let us not be. Let us not be. Because it contains God's power for salvation. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for your ever-saving work. I thank you for the power that is contained there. It will overwhelm me with Jesus Christ again and again and again and again. Lord, I ask that you would keep us from being ashamed. 
Not at all. That we would say, I am not ashamed, and it would motivate us and move us in ways that would turn the world upside down and just change everything for us. God, I thank you for this gospel. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.